Holy Spirit, be with us as a church now. Lord, reveal this passage to us, your divine word. I pray that you would teach, rebuke, correct, encourage, train in righteousness all of us this morning, that we might be men and women of God equipped for every good work, or that we might be servants for you in this world, revealing your glory in every facet of our lives, God, whether we are in the classroom, in the workplace, at church, or amongst our family, God. Help us to be known as servants, God. Give us that heart this morning. Help us to dissect our hearts this morning, to take a close look at them, to make sure that we are truly honoring you. Father, do a mighty work this morning. Do a miracle, God. Make us radical servants, God, that we've never been before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Do you remember the passage in Joshua? Do you still say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? I pray you do. If you haven't said that out loud, I pray that that is subconsciously on your mind. That as for me and my house, I don't know what the rest of the world will do. I don't know what false churches will do. But as for me, what I can control and those who I have control over, those who I can influence, we will serve the Lord. This morning, can we say as a church, as for us and our church, we will serve the Lord. I pray that we can say that with a clear conscience this morning. We've had the blessing to, to look at passage in Joshua, to, to look at the dry bones in Ezekiel, to look at the amazing encounter Isaiah had with the living God in his throne room last week in, in Isaiah chapter 6. And it is true, if you see God for who he is through the eyes of faith, you have no other option but to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Use me, God, as a servant to do your will. I am a man of unclean lips, Lord. I am a sinner through and through, and I need Christ. But through him, I can be the hands and feet of Christ to go and fulfill the Great Commission, to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Is that your purpose in life? Is that your purpose? How have the last few weeks been going? I pray well. And I pray that this hasn't just been a byword, but that you've been reflecting on it in your daily devotions, that you've been praying, God, make me a servant for you. This morning, we have the privilege to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And I chose this passage uh, to preach through because it, it serves our theme of serving the Lord very well. Um, it it kind of looks at it at a different aspect that the other passages haven't focused on quite yet. In the Isaiah 6 Last week, we got the call that we are to say, here I am, Lord, send me. That if we see God for who he is, we will have no other option but to want to take his holiness, the message of the holy gospel, to the world. But now many of you might be sitting in your chairs this morning saying, okay, I pray you've been in the throne room of God this week by opening his word, that you've sought to seek his face. But now that you say, send me, many of you say, okay, well, where am I going to be sent to? Where am I now? Where am I called to do the daily, in and out, mundane work? Sometimes feels like drudgery. But how am I called to take this mountaintop experience and work its way into the minutia of everyday life? The reality is that the Christian life isn't always in these mountaintop experiences. It's not every day that you will feel that same gravity that Isaiah did in, in chapter 6. I pray you do. I pray that God miraculously reveals himself in his word and that you get a, a taste of him every day. 
But the other reality is that we live lives that have a lot of minutia in it. There's a lot of dishes to do. There's a lot of diapers to change. There's a lot of conversations to be had and taxes to be done and, and things in life. And so we want Christ to be part of every aspect of our lives. He already is, but we want to be faithful to him in those. So many of you, when you say, send me, Lord, some of you might be called to be sent in a very dangerous and very grand mission. Some of you might be called to be missionaries on the front lines to UUPGs, to people who have never heard the gospel before. But I'd imagine most of us are called to simply be faithful in the office, in the classroom, in our families, in the day-to-day. And this passage in Ephesians 6 helps us to see how we are to do that, how we are to serve God in our vocation, to serve him from the nine-to-five. And I pray that you ask God, God, how can I be a servant? How can I be faithful to you? Like Joshua said, how can I serve you in this context? It's essential that we say, God, my heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. I know that I am tempted to go astray. And so, God, I need you to daily search my heart to make it new. We need God to tend to our hearts not only for effective service, <coughs> realizing that we can only be effective if we're in tune with God and our hearts naturally go out of tune. So we need to dissect our hearts and use passages like Ephesians 6 to dissect them to pull apart our motivations. But we also need to have more fuel thrown on the fire. What's so discouraging is when you set New Year's resolutions and I pray this hasn't been like one of those. And then they fall apart at the end of January. You come in February and the gym's empty and all your list has been thrown away and the resolutions are gone. And so we need to daily throw fuel, good fuel on the fire of our faith. I like how it says that, that uh, Paul encourages Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. And so we are called to continue to, to fuel that fire, and we need to do that by examining our heart and by looking at passages like this that encourage us to be servants. So this morning, by God's grace, we will do that. We are called, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. You and I are to have an undivided devotion. We are also to have a heart that desires to serve God and to serve those who God has put over us in such a way that we are training like an Olympic athlete. For Olympic athletes, as 1 Corinthians 9 tells us, train and discipline their bodies for a perishable wreath, a trophy that will fade and tarnish and that will eventually be forgotten and end up in a landfill somewhere. But you and I are called to train our bodies, to, to work, to examine, to strive as Christians for the imperishable wreath the glory that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to strive for the glory of God, which is the trophy that you and I, Lord willing, if we're in Christ, we already have, to show the world how beautiful and spectacular that trophy is. Are you striving for that this morning? I pray this morning that as you as we read this passage, you would be encouraged, that fuel would be thrown on your fire, and that you would have more and more motivation and drive to serve him even more this year and for the rest of your life. So this morning, the, the thesis statement or the big idea behind this passage in Ephesians 6, as we heard Tom read, is we are to serve with a sincere heart because Christ gave us his. 
You and I are to serve with a sincere heart because Christ gave us his. We'll look at this in three different ways. First, who are we to serve? Who are bondservants here and who are earthly masters and how does this apply to us? Second, what are the marks and motivation of a sincere heart? You can't separate them. What are the marks and motivation? And lastly, we'll look at what is this reward that is spoken of in in verse 8 that we are to be striving for. So first, who are we to serve? Who are these earthly masters that are referred to in verse 5? And how are we bondservants? How are we slaves? Well, let's look at it. Verse 5 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So I know that it's, what's easy to do is just to take a passage like this and to do two things. Either say, oversimplify it, and to say, oh, well, I know perfectly how this relates to me. I'm going to take this, and he must be talking straight to me, and I'm going to go and do it. So it's like using the Bible almost as a personal therapist or as merely a roadmap to your life and thinking that every verse is, is just about you and your context without understanding the nuances of that context. So we don't want to do that. What we also don't want to do, the other ditch we can fall into, is saying, well, I'm not a bondservant. Slavery ended a while ago in America. We're not in that anymore. So this passage must have been to the Ephesian church. It's not to me. I can just skip right by this and go into the, the better parts. Maybe the, 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 um, the armor of God that we have later in Ephesians 6. I just need to skip to those type of things. No, we can't do either of those errors. But we have to ask how this does apply to us. First, we travel to Ephesus before we can come to Cambrian Park. So what did this mean for the Ephesian church? Well, there... This word bondservants is in Greek doulos. As many of you know, it's simply slave, but the ESV uses bondservant. Some of your translations might say slave. Don't get caught up too much on that. Um, a bondservant essentially means, it's, it's synonymous with slave. It's someone you're bound to to serve. Um, but the reason why the ESV translates it this way for two primary reasons. One, it doesn't want the American readers in our context to associate this slavery with American slavery because this type of slavery in the Roman Empire was a lot more humane in most cases, and oftentimes it was used more like employment, so people would voluntarily enter slavery to become a Roman citizen. And oftentimes their social status and their well-being would be tied with their master. So oftentimes you would have what looks like CEOs in Silicon Valley today, and they would be considered bondservants or slaves. Just because they would have a master doesn't mean that they weren't, uh, they didn't have a level of freedom or they didn't have um, a terminal stopping point. Um, commentator that I read said that most, most bond servants in the Roman Empire actually looked forward to a day where they weren't going to be like that anymore. And so that's, so for those two reasons, that's why it's bond servant. But you can use slave as well as long as you don't associate it primarily with the American uh, injustice that happened in that slavery, in that context. So, uh, when we look at slavery in, this, in the Roman Empire, um, just a few facts for you that one-third of the people in Ephesus were likely slaves. That in the whole Roman donut around the, around the ocean, um, that entire empire, there were estimated around 60 million slaves. So this is not some sidebar issue for the church, but this is a central issue to the life of believers. If you read this in context of Ephesians 5 and following, Paul is ordering the house. He says, all these truths about Christ need to be imported into your life. It impacts how husbands love their wives, how children submit to their parents, and here, how bondservants, which there would have been many of these bondservants in the church in Ephesus, how, how, they are, how are you to relate to your masters? So this was not a side issue. This was very central to how they thought and lived. Obviously, we don't own people today, but 
what we need to realize is that this relates to the boss-worker relationship much more than we think. The relationship then between bond servants and masters was very, very closely tied to how workers and bosses relate today, or how students relate to their teachers, or indirectly, how churches obey and submit to pastors, or how wives submit to their husbands. So any relationship that there is a economy to, that God has, not because one is more valuable than the other, but God has ordered a particular role of obedience, of service, of submitting to, this passage very much applies. As well as we can't forget, with all of the hubbub around us, that we are also to, as citizens, submit to government leaders as well, so far as they don't violate the word of God. I want to remind you of the passage in Romans 13. This will come up again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so what Paul is doing here, and what we have to realize is that when we do not recognize the earthly authorities that Paul puts over us, when we don't submit to them, whether it is a boss um, worker relationship, or whether it's a, a um, sheep under shepherd relationship, or whether it's a husband wife, when we're not submitting, we're ultimately saying, I don't want to submit to you, God, because it's God who puts the people in power that are in power. So we have to realize that ultimately this goes back to serving God and recognizing that even when people are not just, which this passage clearly alludes to, that a lot of the people who he puts on you are not going to be perfect. They're not going to be just sometimes, and yet we're still called to submit because it's God who has sovereignly put them in power. So we have to see that. Ultimately, all of us know what it means to be a bondservant, to be a slave, to submit, because if you have been bought with Christ, and I pray that this church gathered this morning has, then Romans 6 tells us that we are all slaves to righteousness. That means that you are not your own anymore, that your will is not your own, you don't get to act independent, but you are indebted to Christ and righteousness, and you should be living your life now saying, not my will, but yours be done. I want to do this right now, but because I'm a slave to righteousness, I will do your word instead. That should order our priorities, our desires, and what we do in life. So we are all slaves to righteousness. So, indeed, Ephesians 6 applies to each one of us. If you are in a workplace, there's direct application, but even in the home or in the classroom, all of us need to submit and love one another as we would Christ. Um, And there's many principles we can pull out of it. So, we realize that this does indeed impact us. We cannot shirk responsibility. We cannot oversimplify this either. So now that we see that we are, we're not off the table, but all of us have to submit to this passage, let's, let's look closer at it. How are we to obey our earthly masters? What are the marks and motivations of the servant's heart? So this passage has a lot to say about it, and it's very simple but it's very hard to do, right? It's really easy to watch. It's like watching pro golfers and say, I'm going to go out and do that. Easy to watch, easy to observe, very hard to live out. So read this simple passage and ask God to help you live it out. So first, how are we to have them? What are the marks and motivations of a servant heart? First thing I want to key in on, and this, all the other dominoes will topple if we get this. At the end of verse 5, it says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ as you would Christ. 
All the other descriptors, all the other facets will fall in line if you get what it means to serve as you would Christ. Who is this Christ that we are to serve? He is both the lion and the lamb. He is both the lion and the lamb. We see that in Revelation 5. That should motivate us both to submit to his authority and also be wooed by his love. The Ephesian church would have heard this passage in context of Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. Listen to me about the lion-like ruler that Christ is that we are to submit to and submit to earthly leaders as well, knowing that this leader has put him in place. So Ephesians 1, 20 through 22 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so we see here that Christ isn't some dead prophet, but he's the living, reigning, ruling king. And he is the lion, and he stands above all earthly power, and every authority on earth gets their authority from his sovereign rule. We have to get that. And that has to, seeing that this omnipotent, omniscient, lion-like ruler He sees your heart, and he sees your motives, he sees every thought you have, and he knows how well you submit to your leaders. And it should be out of fear of this man, this God-man, who will judge the living and the dead one day, that you have, say, I have a desire to submit. Out of fear and trembling, because of who this person is, as I would Christ, whether my boss is nice to me or not, I'm going to submit to him, because not because I fear this guy so much, but because I fear this lion-like Savior. We should see that and tremble before the magnificence of Christ. So we see that his lion-like ruling in Ephesians 1. We will rightly tremble, we will rightly have fear of our earthly rulers when we look to Christ first. Because of Romans 13, we know that he put them in power, and when we disobey them, we're disobeying this one as well. We don't want to do that. Think of it like, and an example that we use oftentimes is, If you see a cop on the side of the road, you're much more likely to do the speed limit, aren't you? You're much more likely because you see those lights, you see that that black and white car, and you're going to do the speed limit because you can see it. Oftentimes we talk about, if if I had Christ physically standing next to me, I would be a lot better person. If he was walking alongside of me, I wouldn't look at the things I do on the TV or on my computer. I wouldn't talk the way I do to certain people. If, if only Christ was physically standing next to me and his presence were felt, I would be a lot different. Well, you know what? He promises that he is with you into the end of the age, that he is with you. And it takes the eyes of faith to know him and to see him. But whether you like it or not, this This king who's omniscient, he knows everything, is standing right next to you. He is with you. And so it should cause you to properly serve and want to have a sincere heart. And any grumbling, any sense of drudgery that you have, that needs to be dealt with quick because this one can see and he is not pleased whenever we dishonor him and dishonor those who God has set above us. So we say, okay, Kurt, we get that Christ will judge, we get that he's powerful and that we should fear him. But does Christ only rule with a clenched fist and an iron scepter? Well, brothers and sisters, thankfully, if that were it, then we should fear, and that should be the end of it. And we should say, okay, I will then be fearful and tremble, and I will serve those who God puts over me. That should be it. But thankfully, he gives us more. And this is mere grace. We do not deserve this. But Christ has also 
revealed himself to be a lamb as well. He doesn't just rule over us, which he indeed does, but he also comes alongside us and woos us with the most tender, loving, gentle service that a Savior could. We see this, and the Ephesians would have heard this letter in the context of Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 as well. Hear these words, brothers and sisters. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when we come to chapter 6, we would have already read chapter 1 and 5. In verse 5, you would have heard this Christ not only rules, but he gave himself up for you. He laid his own life down. He lo- There's no one else in this world that can love you more than this man who has given himself up for you, took on your hell on himself, and went to the cross and gave himself. What greater love, what greater service, what, what greater compassion do we see in this world? None. And so this lamb-like Savior comes alongside you, not only commands you to submit to your boss, to your teacher, to your husband, to your pastor, but he also says to you, look at how I served you. Look at my tender compassion. Look how patient I was with you. And that should break your heart and it should melt you to say, I, can, I have no other choice but to serve. It's like when you're in an argument with your spouse and your spouse comes alongside and they, re, they, they say, I'm sorry. And they say, I've been wrong. And, they say, and even if they've done just a fraction of what you've done, you know, I hope that breaks you down as, an, as the other spouse. And I hope that causes you to be like, oh, wait. Oh, no. I can't, be, I can't hold this grudge anymore. In that same way, not that Christ obviously has done nothing wrong to any of us, but when he comes along us, beside us and he's tender, he undercuts our pride, and he reminds us that you should serve. Who are you to not serve if I, the king of the universe, has come and I've served you? So he wins us over with his love as well. So in verse 5 here of Ephesians 6, when it says, serve as you would Christ, hopefully you have the Christ as a lion and a lamb in your mind. And as you're looking in the eyes of your teacher, of your boss, of the government authorities that God has put over you and he's called you to serve on a nine-to-five, hopefully you see past that, bo- that corrupt person, that, sinner, that sinful person, and you see this lion and lamb-like savior. And that motivates you to serve with a sincere heart. You should because he gave his heart to you. So now that we've looked at as you would Christ, the rest of these dominoes will fall into place. Let's zoom in on fear and trembling as it's juxtaposed with eye service as people pleasers. I love the language that's used here. It really cuts to the heart, doesn't it? So when we see fear and trembling, does this mean shaking in your boots and just saying, sir, yes, sir, at every little beck and call? No. We're not called to be just mindless, mindlessly subservient, but we're called to have fear and trembling in a way that is a right respect, a right honor that's derived from the honor that we show Christ. So yes, there should be a right, a right reverence, a right respect, a right honor for our teachers, pastors, um, government authorities, but it shouldn't be this, oh, I'm just going to submit my entire life and mind to this sinner and do whatever they say and just be a yes man. We shouldn't do that either. But this fear and trembling um, should be a stark difference to what we see in our society today of how people submit. How well do we submit anyway? Have you seen, have you seen people in the workplace? Have you seen teenagers? Have you seen 
your own generation, I, sh I shouldn't just pick on teenagers, have you seen your own generation? How quick are they to submit? How quick are they to give respect? How much breaking down needs to be done in the military? I wasn't in it, so I can't tell you, but maybe I asked Pastor Keith or Tim, and they will tell you that a lot of breaking down has to happen. It's natural as sinners for us to despise authority. My whole generation demands respect before we give it. It's really sad. When I was working at Cisco, um, day one, an instructor comes in and says, okay, I want you guys to focus and look around, and everyone's laptop is open, and everyone's IMing each other, texting each other, saying, you know, making fun of this teacher, making fun of this guy, surfing the web, doing online shopping. Everything but respect and authority to this person. You know what? Because this guy, in their mind, hasn't demanded, he hasn't deserved their respect yet. He hasn't come in and he hasn't appealed to them. He hasn't been cool enough. He hasn't cussed enough yet to demand their respect. So they're not going to give it. My whole generation has this weird mindset where someone needs to earn that respect first, rather than the fact that God has ordered the worldly economy to be set up in a particular way. So I will give respect, not because of this person's perfection, but because God has commanded me to do so. It's wicked. And what's even more wicked is that leadership today starts, is giving into this mindset. Instead of, instead of saying that, no, this is not right, and rectifying it, they give into it. When I was also at a Cisco, um, the big events they do in Las Vegas, the CEO of the company and all the big C-level um, bosses basically dressed up with wigs and really ridiculous clothes and basically reenacted the Hunger Games movie and came in and acted as goofy and whimsical as possible and basically tried to, trying to appeal to my generation. And yeah, all the you know, people next to me were laughing at them and saying, oh, I can trust this person because they're like me. But I was sitting there like, I'm called to respect these people and to listen to them? This is weird. I know this is a crazy example, but we see this. As parents, we are tempted to give in to our kids, to be their friends. Yes, you should, yes, you should seek to love and, and be friendly to your kids and, and to, at some level be their friends, but not merely be their friends. You get what I mean? We can't, we can't disorder God's economy because it's easier for us and we're prone to do that. So we need to have this right economy of fear and trembling to earthly masters. Think, about, think right now as I'm preaching this sermon, who are my earthly masters? How, how well am I practically doing this? So let's juxtapose that with not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That, those are such descriptive words. I love them. So, eye service. Think about what that means. Eye service wants to be seen. It wants glory. It does just enough to get the job done without doing it thoroughly. It's just cleaning the, the visible parts of the toilet without cleaning underneath on the other side or on the back of the toilet. It's, it's checking the box. Um, it, it's building something that will pass when someone inspects it, but knowing that it'll fall apart weeks later. It's, it's eye service is only doing what you need to do when the master is present. We all have done this eye service, haven't we? In soccer, it was, it was embarrassing. We, we had to do leg lifts to work our abs, we'll lift them off the ground and hold them for a minute. Whenever the coach walked around, right when he would turn his head, everyone would put their legs down so there wouldn't be any resistance. And then right when he turned around, you saw all the legs lift up again thinking that, oh, yeah, these, these, you know, these kids are really getting a good workout for a minute. No. It was, I, that's the, the, you know, in my mind, visually, that is eye service at its best. Um, when your eyes are not on you, you do not do the work like you know you should. We are all prone to this as well. Let, us, let none of us 
take ourselves off the hook on this. We are all guilty of this eye service. I was convicted this week in my parenting. It was about an hour before dinner was ready. Yasmin was making dinner, and I was watching Gwen and Evie. And in that time, I felt my heart wanting to check my phone, smelling dinner, not being present with them, but wanting to be at the table, rather than serving my daughters, not because they're my earthly masters so much, but because God has given them to me, and they are God's children, and he's called me to steward them. And so I'm serving God right now. I need to be subservient to him. So rather than really loving and serving these girls that God has, has given me, because they, they don't know, they're little, their, their minds can't tell how engaged I am, I caught myself wanting, already being at the dinner t- table because I was hungry, wanting to check my phone because I wanted a break. And so I thought, man, how easy is it for me to check out in my heart and my mind and to be somewhere else rather than simply serving those who are right in front of me? Those who, they may not even perceive if I have the right heart or not, but God perceives. God perceives, doesn't he? So we should, even the lowliest among us, desire to lay our lives down to serve and to check our hearts. I know I should. So this eye service is something we have to look out for. It's the opposite of a sincere heart. Next, people-pleasing. This like eye service is all about self-glory. People-pleasing is needing people for yourself rather than loving people for God. It's needing people for you rather than loving people on behalf of God. People-pleasing is shown in Proverbs 29, 25. It says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. What is this snare? What is this trap that Proverbs speak of? People-pleasing is a trap because it holds out the promise of blessing, of security, of of honor. If, If people could just like me, I would be right, and life would go the way I want it, and I would be safe. But it's like a snare in that it comes back and bites us, doesn't it? Because if we put our hope in people to lift us up, to give us what we need, are people like God? No, they're not. People are fickle. People will, will, will say, oh, if you just do this for me, I will you know, do this for you, and then you think, oh, that, but then people are inconsistent. And then they'll go back and they won't give you that honor that you were looking for. They won't pay you that compliment. People-pleasing is dangerous because people are sinners. And people, even when they give you what you're looking for, it will not fulfill you. You're going to go looking out for more stuff and more affirmation. So people-pleasing must cannot be how we serve either. Because that is the opposite of a sincere heart. And in the end, it will just leave us feeling empty. And we will not be serving for the right reasons. It will ultimately be self-glorifying. So we have to be careful that we are not looking for the blessing that comes from man, but that we see that only God can provide blessing, only God can provide security, and we have to serve people with a sincere heart, knowing that God can reward us, and that God's blessing, God's voice to say, well done, is the only voice that we should be looking for. That's the only affirmation that you should need, so that you don't die by people's rejection, that you can be steadfast on God's word to you, that you can speak his gospel truths over you and be encouraged by that. So hopefully we've seen these dominoes topple, these being fearfully trembling and not having eye service as people pleasers are a natural outflowing of serving our earthly masters as we would Christ. Because you wouldn't do those things for Christ, would you? You can't do things with eye service for Christ because 
Christ knows everything. He's omniscient. You can't fool him, can you? You have no option, and so you should work and serve thoroughly, steadfastly, knowing that you are always being watched. All this is to be done with, with a sincere heart. And although I've alluded to this idea of a sincere heart so far, let's, let's dive into it. So we're, we're told uh, to have this sincere heart throughout this passage. At the end of verse 5, it says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Um, it says uh, later on, rendering service with a good will. And so this idea of a good will is tied in to having a sincere heart. Um, and so we are to do and then at the end of verse 6 also, it says, doing the will of God from the heart. And so this is repeated so many times that we better pay attention to what this means. <clears throat> First of all, before we dive into it, how is your heart? How is your heart right now? How's your heart right now? Are you, are you able to listen to these words? Are you engaged with what I'm saying? Not because Kurt is such a good speaker, but are you engaged because the word of God is being spoken right now? Is God pleased with not only the presentation of the word, but the, the hearing and receiving of it. I prayed for you this week. I said, God, help me. I'm a sinful man for claiming your word. But also, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. What, may they come with sincere hearts, ready to listen and ready to obey this morning, ready to soak in your truth. Um, so test your heart right now. I know this is 75% through the sermon. It's time to start lolling. Um, but take these words and apply them. Say, God, give me a heart that is in tune with your word and is hungry to hear it. So how is your heart right now? The word sincere in Greek is haplates, and I love it. It means singular and simplistic. To have singular simplicity, to have a sincere heart, to to not have multiple motives, to not have uh, just conjure, uh, oh, how can I get something out of this for me, but have just a singular simplicity in your service. And then the word heart, is cardios, and we, we hear that word, you know, cardiac, or we know it in the English as heart. Um, and we've said this before, but this is the center of you. This is the center of your being, your desires, your affections, your will, is your heart. And so do you have some, a singular simplicity in your will and your desires as you're called to serve? When someone says, uh, honey, can you run to the store for me to get this or that? Or, hey, can you um, can you help me out? Can you just spare a few minutes? Do you have a duplicitous heart that says, uh, yes, I will do it, and really you don't feel like it? Or is there a singular simplicity in your desires to say, yes, I will do it? Um, having Christ ever before you, I pray that is. It's vital that our service comes from this type of sincerity in our heart. We are all guilty of half-hearted efforts, We are all guilty of being checked out, of daydreaming, of doing the bare minimum, of embracing the drudgery of a job with a bitter heart. We are all guilty of feeling unmotivated because maybe our earthly master, whether that's a boss, teacher, husband, pastor, because maybe we saw something in them that didn't stand up to the amount of integrity we wanted them to have. Um, because we saw them sin, and so we said, oh, well, they're not perfect, so I shouldn't submit to them. We've all checked out because we thought the task was below us, or it didn't fit into our expectations. We said it didn't fit into the what's in it for me question. Or in that moment, we, we loved our comfort more than we loved that person, more than we loved God. We idolized comfort in that moment. 
So we all know what it means to do things half-heartedly or have a divided heart, to be hypocrites in a sense. And so we have to be honest with ourselves that the reality is that none of us can raise our hand and say we've always had a sincere heart, can we? We all fall short. And God is dissecting our hearts this morning. He's pulling them apart. He's looking at their motives. And he reveals to us, and I pray that the Spirit right now is helping you see and understand the particular ways in which in your life you have not done this, that you have not had a sincerity of heart so that you can rectify that and so that you can repent of that. Who can say that you have, some, you have, you have served with a simplicity, with a single-mindedness out of the desire to honor Christ? To, to, how, how many of you can say that you've served your earthly masters always like that? I know I can't. I must warn you, brothers and sisters, that although this is common to the human experience, this is not okay. This is not right. This great God and Savior that we saw in Ephesians 1, the, the lion and the lamb we see in Revelation 5, he is worthy of a sincere heart. He is worthy of all of your service. So just because other people are like you doesn't make it okay. I have to warn you that you are in trouble this morning. You are in a bad place if this describes you. Be warned, not by me, but by Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This isn't the only place Scripture speaks of this. Throughout Scripture, we know that Christ will judge all the intentions, all the motivations of our heart on that last day. They will be brought into the light, and they will be seen by him and judged properly. If you are not a believer this morning, if you have been thinking about this and examining your life and you say, you know what? Come to think of it, actually all of my service has either been for me or it's been for some other reason and it hasn't been for Christ. I may have played this church thing for a while now and I might have fooled people with my with eye service, but you know what? If I'm going to be honest with myself, I don't know the Savior. I don't bear the fruit of being a Christian and I don't truly believe him to be this majestic king you speak of. If you are in that place this morning, if you are not a believer, and this is not just common in your life, or this is not just every once in a while, but this describes the entirety of your life, of being a people pleaser with eye service, then you need to be warned this morning. It will not go for well for you in that last day. In the parable of, of the talents we heard Jesus say, and, and Jeremy read from, that, that Christ has given talents for people to use and invest and to give back to him on that last day. You know what happened to the man who buried his talents and didn't use them? Who didn't serve with a sincere heart? You know what happened? Christ came back and he cast that man into the outer darkness. It's not a small thing to squander the blessings and to squander the sacrifice Christ did on the cross. And if you are in that position, then your end is the outer darkness. It is a burning lake of fire for eternity. Be warned this morning. Repent and believe that God, you may be fooling everyone around you, but God does see. I love you, and that is why I warn you. I was in that place when I was 17 years old, living for myself. Everyone thought I was a good kid, the straight-A student. Kurt was just the, great, the greatest. Not, maybe not everyone thought that, but I thought that of myself. And I was fooling no one. Christ saw my heart with alcohol in my bloodstream, 
God caused a car to flip off the side of the road, and he woke me up. Not only with that, but with going, going to a church camp, hearing a proclamation of the gospel, God saved me. God showed me how wicked my heart was and how I could look squeaky clean on a Sunday morning, but what I did on a Friday night, what I did on a Tuesday in front of my boss was, was evil and it was wicked. And I pray that if you are not saved, that he would wake you up too. I hope it doesn't take a car accident, but I pray that he would wake you up. If you're a believer this morning, I must warn you that you have sinned against greater light. That you have tasted and experienced the salvation that comes through Christ, and you, unlike the unbeliever, have actually felt what it means to be served by the infinite, amazing love of God. Because of all that has been given to you, how much more wicked, how much more grievous is it for you to not serve with a sincere heart, for you to be double-minded, not have a singular simplicity in serving your earthly masters and obeying your, your, your bosses, your pastors, your government. Because you have greater light. You've been given more. You've tasted and seen and experienced what it means to be served to that degree. So it is even more grievous that you would not serve with sincerity of heart. You may have pleased man, and you may have fooled even yourself in thinking that you are doing well. But God sees through it. And as a father, as a father, he is righteously furious with all of his children who harbor a duplicitous, begrudging, grumbling heart. A heart that does not serve with respect to the heart that Jesus extended to you. He is righteously furious. And I don't say that to, to do the whole fire and brimstone thing and to, to guilt you into serving. I do that because as a father, when my girls sin, whenever they disobey me, Lord willing, I have a righteous anger. Sometimes it's sinful anger, but Lord willing, I have a righteous anger, and I'm not okay when they are not doing what I have asked them to do. Know that our Heavenly Father is much better than me, and he sees much more than I see, and he sees. And just as you, if you were a parent, or if you are a parent, you know of the anger that comes because you love your children and you want them to serve. And you want them to not just be like those, uh, those people that just check the box off and that go through their life skating by, doing a cheap effort and having things fall apart. You don't want that. You don't want that type of service because you know how horrible a ref- reputation that gives the gospel. And so you too, as a parent, would have that same righteous, furious anger towards your children. Rightfully so, if they were serving in that way. So some of you need to be rebuked this morning as believers, that you know how much, how much you've, just, you've coddled that drudgery. Maybe your job isn't fulfilling to you. Maybe you wish you were doing something else, or maybe you wish you were retired already. God is saying, don't harbor that bitterness. Don't resent those that God has put in authority over you. Even if they are wicked, it says here um, in, in verse 6 that um, or in verse 7, rather, doing a service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. God recognizes that man is going to fail you. Man is not going to deserve or your respect a lot of times. But that doesn't let you off the hook, right? So be rightly rebuked and corrected this morning by the word of God to know that he as a father loves you too much to not discipline you. And he desires for you to have a singular simplicity, to have a sincere Desire, motive, will, heart in your service. 
how can any of us have this heart? You say, Kurt, this sounds unrealistic. Is it even possible for God's church, for God's people to serve in this type of way? Or is this unattainable? Is this something that I shouldn't even try for? Am I going to leave this, this place discouraged this morning and just give up, knowing that well, maybe one day in heaven I'll have this, but, maybe not, but I don't think I can ever do this? I know how evil my heart is and how much I hate authority. Well, the good news for you, brothers and sisters, is that each one of us, we can have this heart. Not perfectly, but you and I can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You and I can grow in how we serve and have our hearts worked on, dissected, if you will, by God to have sin be killed in us, put to death so that we might be sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ. You and I can actually hope for that and have great hope this morning that you and I can grow in these ways. How so? It's through the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the reality that God ordered this world. He placed earthly authorities over you, and yet you and I have spit on that economy. We have spit in the face of authority. We wanted to be gods. We wanted to be served. We wanted to have power. You and I have, have not served. You and I have had this ill will towards those who God has put over us. And yet, rather than leaving us there, this holy God sent his son, fully God, Jesus, into the world. Entered the, he entered into this power-hungry world that desired to be served with a very distinct class system that wanted to work up that ladder. This is the world that Christ entered into, and he flipped that world upside down, brothers and sisters. He flipped the world upside down, and he reminded us that glory comes through service, that honor comes through humility, and that true security comes through sacrifice. That security, that honor, that glory come through service, humility, and sacrifice. That's what Christ reminded us, and that's how God ordered this world. He reminded us of that. And then Christ, with a singular desire and a, a, a forehead like flint, as it said, a, a stubbornness, went to the cross, even though he had many uh, chances to get out of that. He willingly said, I will, with a sincere heart, with a pure motive, go to this cross and die for the undeserving race of people that I want to redeem. Christ's heart was completely pure. He could, of anyone who could have grumbled, of anyone who could have complained, of anyone who could have said, God, this really doesn't really work with my plan, it, it could have been Christ. And yet he didn't, did he? The Lord of the universe washed stinky, dirty feet. The God who deserves to have nothing but life and honor and wealth went to a Roman cross, two pieces of wood, nailed together, and had his heart run through with a spear of a Roman soldier. Not a, one of his bones was broken to fulfill prophecy, but his heart was run through by a Roman soldier, and water and blood spilt out of it onto the ground. Christ was crucified, died likely of suffoca suffocation on a Roman cross for you and for I, not because we deserve it, but because Christ, with a perfectly sincere servant heart, died so that you and I could have this same heart. So that you and I could be forgiven, could be cleansed, and could be saved, and could be equipped to serve God for the first time. The good news is that this Christ not only died, but was raised to life three days later. 
And that same heart that was pierced through for you and I, that you and I deserve to have pierced for our sin, after he rose from the dead, he extends his heart to each one of us for a relationship now. The heart that was pierced, he extends to you and I this morning and to all his people around the world. He extends that heart to you in relationship saying, know me, be broken by me, be comforted by me. Submit to my authority and love those around you. Show the world this upside-down kingdom that I've showed you and remind them of who the one is to truly serve. Christ is offering his heart to you this morning in great love and sacrifice. How will you respond? Repentance and faith? Inviting God, search my heart, God, show me my wicked ways, cause me to repent and be a better servant? Will you respond with repentance and faith this morning? I pray you do, brothers and sisters. I plead with you, do so. Because the only other option is hell. The only other option is hell. If you choose to say, no, I'm going to stubbornly go through life wanting to be served, talking Christianese, looking to serve with eye service as people pleasers, doing the bare minimum, checking the box, being a member of this church on paper but not in practice, If that is you, if that is your heart, and that's what you hold on to with stubborn defiance, then your end is hell, and I do not want that for you. Choose repentance and faith this morning. He's calling you. He's coming to you as the lion, calling you to submit to your earthly masters, and he's coming to you as a lamb as well, extending his heart to you. What's the result? I pray the result is repentance and faith, but once you've done that, how should life look? Well, Ephesians tells us, it says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So what we'll do, want to do is we'll want to do the will of God now. In our work, we'll want to be ethical. We'll want to serve with purity. We'll want to not see our work as merely getting the job done, but also a place of discipleship and evangelism. That will order our priorities and give us a heart for people, a heart of service, even when it's comfort- not comfortable. How else will it look? It'll look by a heart that is, like I said at the start, it will continue to heap fuel on that servant's heart. That you'll be motivated by a push and a pull. The push you'll be motivated by, and Piper coined this term, and I I love it, so I'm going to use it. The push is the gospel. In the past, what God has done for you in Christ should break your heart so that you cannot do anything but serve as he did. He should push you. But you should also be pulled, not pulled into the future into the new heavens and new earth by, as verse 8 says, knowing that whatever good you do, you will receive that back from the Lord. You should be motivated not only by what Christ has done for you, but by what you will receive on that last day. By be, being pulled into the, to the eschaton, into heaven, when you know that, that God will reward you back for what you've done. I thought this week, how often am I motivated to say, I want to do good because... I'm motivated by the good God will do back for me. Now, we are, as evangelicals, we are so quick to write this off and say, no, I don't want us to receive anything. But why would Paul say this here? And why would this whole concept of eternal rewards be repeated not only here but in James and throughout Scripture if God didn't want us to be motivated by it? You should be motivated by these eternal rewards. Now, the caveat is, obviously it's not for your glory, but think of it this way, and I got this, um, this example from 
it's uh, Got Questions, which is a really helpful, succinct, systematic theology um, that you have to be careful with sometimes, but this is a good example I got from this website. It said that these rewards are like a trophy a child receives. Is it the trophy itself that the child is excited about, that piece of plastic that has a little placard on it? Is it, is it that little thing that the child looks for? No, it's what the trophy represents of why the child, when they play the sport or do whatever, want the trophy. So it is with us. These rewards, which we are not definitive of exactly what they are. We've heard some church uh, historians think that it's proximity to Christ or, or something else in, it, in eternity. But what, what we do know is that these rewards should act like a trophy or that imperishable wreath. Not that we value and want to hoard them for me, but we want those rewards because of what that trophy points to and what it symbolizes and who it reminds us um, worked for us and worked through us in this life. Just the same way a trophy, when you win a tournament, points back to all the hard work, effort, sacrifice you did in practicing and playing those games and winning, so too these eternal rewards point back to how God has been so gracious and worked through you in your life. And that's why you should long for them. That's why you should be motivated by them. Not for your own glory, obviously, but so you can say, wow, God used this broken, humble vessel to do many things, to serve many people and to show his gospel in this life. That should be how you view these trophies, as a pointer to the real value, to God working in you and working through you. So you should not only be pushed by the gospel, but motivated by the pull of these rewards as well. I'll end with a a proverb that many of you heard, but I feel like it's very appropriate here. This well-traveled parable says, Three workmen were building a cathedral, and a, and a visitor walked by and questioned them, what are you guys doing? The first an- answered, I am chipping these stones. The second answered, I am earning wages. And the third answered, I am building a great cathedral. The third response is the attitude that we should want in our life as we serve. That even if you're doing the most mundane task, you see it not as as just chipping stones or just earning your wage, not as just a means, not, not as just, just I'm going to get through this and I'm, I'm going to have more comfort later, but you should see even the most mundane task as helping to build the cathedral of God, to helping to establish his church, to cause the light of the gospel to go forth. How miraculous is it, brothers and sisters, if in our workplaces, in our office buildings, in our homes, in our classrooms, In this church, if we show respect for earthly masters in such a way that the world looks on and says, what in the world are you doing? They haven't commanded your your respect yet. They haven't come down to your level and showed themselves as cool. No, but I will respect this person because God has told me to. And because in my respect for them, I am respecting Christ. And I am rendering service to them with a pure heart, with a sincerity of heart as to the Lord and not to man. I pray that you can say that this morning, and I'm going to ask for God's blessing on us as a church and for, us, for him to rightly convict us of how we've fallen short and to empower us to be this type of church. As we continue to serve the Lord, let's continue to dissect our own hearts, to, to ask God to, to show us our sin and to give us the same servant-like heart that Christ had because he's given it to us. Let's pray. Here we are, Lord, send us. Lord, we've gotten just a glimpse of who you are through Ephesians 6 this morning. 
Lord, when we read this passage, we have no other choice but to say, send us, God. Send us out into the world, maybe to do something phenomenal, maybe to do something drastic, but maybe not. Maybe to toil in the day-to-day and taking care of family members and making lunches and doing diapers and doing paperwork. God, for your glory, help us to serve you in those contexts. Do your will as a faithful servant. Help us to have a singular simplicity in our service. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see Christ and his infinite service for us, how we did not deserve to be served or, or died for or saved, but that Christ did it anyway because he was doing it for your glory, God, and out of love for us. Captivate us, Lord. Work in us. Make us like Christ this morning and help us to bring much honor and glory to you. And may our evangelism and our discipleship be undergirded by our life, a life of great service. In Jesus' name, amen.